Welcome to the Preserving Family Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to equip you to gain insight, information, and inspiration to help you protect, teach, and guide your family during these turbulent times. Our goal is to provide tools and resources to help you strengthen and preserve your own marriages and families. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Mark and Janie Ogletree. Well, Kevin, it is so good to be with you today on your turf this time. Yeah, I'm on my home home turf here. This is nice. <laughs> this is a great, great location to be in Texas. It's always good for, for us to come home to what I call the motherland and smell the smells and eat the food, right? That's right. So anyway, I thought it would be awesome to sit in your office today and talk to you a little bit about resiliency and coping since it seems like a very relevant topic today just it feels like fewer and fewer of our children and youth and you know young single adults for that matter are being equipped with some of the coping skills they need to navigate this world what do you see out there one of the ways that I look at it mark is that the, the phrase that keeps coming to mind that I heard from a mentor years ago is that we have a generation that's starving at the feast Mm. They have more possibilities, more options in front of them in terms of careers and uh, abilities to go and do stuff like that. And yet they're starving because they don't know how to make decisions. Or if they do make decisions, they don't trust them. Uh, so, mm. for instance, they have more access to cars and vehicles, but fewer of them drive. Yeah, uh, so true. <laughs> and, and they have more options in ways that they can serve, even in the church. And yet they're more anxious and, and then when they, when they struggle with something, it's harder for them to come back. <laughs> so you're right. It's, it's a generation that struggles with bounce back. Uh, can I be uncomfortable and move forward anyway? It's a hard issue. Kevin, uh, true confessions, uh, because we do have a lot of teenagers today. And, and Jean Twins documents this in her book on iGen. You know, that I love fewer that and fewer, fewer and fewer of our teenagers want to even get a driver's license and... Uh, don't you remember when we were kids just finding every reason in the world to back the car up in the driveway mm-hmm. or move it five feet or yeah. accidentally say, Dad, I need to park this in the front of the house <laughs> when you were 14? <laughs> On my birthday, I was sitting at the DMV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make sure that day I'm getting my driver's license. Right, right. Uh, and, and yet, uh, currently I'm in a YSA ward, and I would say upwards of... Uh, 30 to 40 percent don't have a driver's license and probably fewer than 50 percent have their own car yeah have access to a car so even that anxiety and and they will look at it and say well I can chat online I can chat in the middle while we're gaming Uh, I have these online friendships and online connections and it's true that they do but when it comes to going out and getting a job uh, serving on a mission uh, I don't know about you but I've had several young men that part of getting them ready for their mission at 18 or 19 was they had to get their driver's license before right. they could go out. Right. Wow. So so true today. You know, here's a really interesting thought from this uh, great psychologist, David Fassler, out of the University of Vermont, who says that just so many teenagers today haven't had enough thing, bad things happen to them. And in order for children to learn how to cope with normal frustrations and ups and downs, they have to experience them first but they're just not experiencing that, those things. How come? What are you seeing? Well, I, I, the place that I guess I would push back a little bit is if you ask them, they'll tell you that they've experienced bad things. Yeah. 
Sure. You know, uh, they've experienced people being mean, or they've experienced uh, something that was uncomfortable, and it was maybe like the worst moment of their life. Right. And and certainly those things are traumatizing if they're being bullied or or something like that. But at the same time, their ability to cope with something like that is for them the most worst moment mm. of their life. And I think it, as you're talking to people, you're talking. Tell me about childhood traumas or something, and say, mm-hmm. "Well, you know, I got a B, <laughs> or, right. or some, or I, I couldn't fit in with the kids at church, and that was like the worst experience of my life." And again, I don't want to minimize that those aren't bad, but they become very traumatic kinds of things. Relevant to this generation, you know, um, for sure. But maybe something previous generations, uh, it wasn't. It may not have been an issue for them, right? It wasn't framed that way, certainly. And and the expectation was that if you did have those kind of experiences, that you'd you'd buckle up and just push through it and and come out on the other side, because uh, that was the expectation. Now the expectation is, pull me out of that class or have me change wards or or something where. Or, or we're going to sit down and have a parent-teacher conference right away because... Well, yeah, and, and many uni- universities today have these safe rooms where, where uh, students can go and talk. Uh, if they've heard something in a class or if a guest speaker came right. and said something that they don't like or that's hurtful to them, where in our day you just kind of listen to that and then you and I would walk out and I'd say, what would you think of that? And you'd say, that's kind of dumb, and we'd just kind of move right. on. right. But uh, now it's, it's kind of becoming uh, a thing, so to speak. Uh, I think the hard part, too, is that it's easy for us at, at our age and our generation to say, well, in my generation, <laughs> you know, so you didn't do it that way, um, which, which it's true. I think they're less resilient, and, and they're, more of them are starving at the feast. The buffet is in front of them, but they don't know how to eat. Um, but that really is the world that they live in. So, so, true. so our ability to say to them, yes, that was traumatizing, I get it, but now let's figure out how you learn to breathe and bounce back and how you hang on to who you are in spite of what somebody might say. Uh, rather than tendency on part of a lot of parents is just to immediately rescue them out of whatever. Right. Kind of, or, or solve it from a parent standpoint rather than say to a kid, like you and I have talked about in other uh, discussions. Uh, that's really hard, sweetheart. What's your plan? What are you gonna do? Putting it back on them. I like that. Yeah, I do. And uh, you know, I thought Kevin, as you were talking, I thought, you know, here's the irony: is our parents thought we were wimps. <laughs> yes, <right>? they did. <laughs> and I know that I had a dad that uh, woke up at five in the morning to milk cows and right. and those kind of things. And I certainly didn't have to do that. What about this idea? This is, you know, Madeline Levine's book, The Price of Privilege, was a fascinating read for me a few years ago. But she talked about that the children can't develop resilience when their parents are constantly at their side, interfering with the development of autonomy, self-management, and coping. How do parents, Kevin, get in the way of their children's autonomy, well, their children's resilience and coping? Or how can they get in the way, maybe a better question. Let, let, let me give you an example. Recently I had a family in, in my office and, and the son has struggled on and off with pornography. Right. Uh, and, and in talking to the parents, they, they, they monitored every, every moment that he was on the phone, 
uh, they had it so locked down that there was nothing he could do. They, they wouldn't know about it. So they knew when he went to sites and, sure. and all that. And I asked the dad, at what point? I said, eventually he's going he's gonna to go off to BYU is where he wants to go. And, and how are you going to handle it when suddenly he handles all of that? And he says, no, we'll continue to handle it from here. We're going to continue to monitor everything <laughs> that he's doing here. Sure. Um, and, Mark, the funny thing is, in talking to the kid, the kid went... Because I, I talked to the kid just recently, and he said, "Oh no, I'm still struggling with that, but I found a lot of other ways around this." Uh, and sometimes I will do things just to mess with them, to, to, to prove that I can do that. Um, well, I, I get the I get the parental control over pornography or going out with friends or things like that when they're 13, 14, 15. But the problem is they try and do it at 17, 18. 19 and the kids are never learning to, mm. to self-regulate themselves because parents are so afraid that they might make a mistake. Right. They might have a problem. And so there's a, there's a balance between saying, how do we do it top down when they're young, but how do we have more of a, of a, a collaborative experience between parents and kids as they get older? And that is hard to take your foot off the gas and turn it over to them, let them sure. drive. Sure. No, that's that's incredible. That's a great uh, scenario. I was. Let's think of some scenarios that we've experienced in our in our lives as parents, as as therapists, as ecclesiastical leaders. And as I share that with you, I'm thinking of a a mother that I talked to at her wedding reception. Well, it was the wedding reception for their son, uh-huh. and she was saying, "Wow, this is just gonna, this is going to be so expensive." I said, I know, weddings, I know, weddings are expensive. And she said, no, I mean, after the wedding. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we, got, we have to pay their car payments and their rent. And, yeah. and she listed five or six things. And I thought, wow, wait, what? I, are you kidding me? And uh, anyway, and I learned that they were just bankrolling their adult children, all of their adult children. And, and that becomes, that's more of a trend that we see today. I know in my own area, there are doctors who can't retire because they're supporting all of their adult children. Yeah, uh, I remember living in a in a <clears throat> ward in Utah where we had a brand new set of really expensive homes coming in, and we were surprised by how many of those were newlyweds moving into these expensive homes. Yeah, and and it was obvious as you started talking to them that parents had bankrolled uh, the down payment. <laughs> they were still doing a lot of the payments. Because their kids expected that when they got married, that they would have they would live in the same kind of house that their parents had. It <laughs> took them twenty or thirty years to build up their their careers and their income to get into that. But the kids wanted it right now, right at the front end. And for some reason, the parents felt this obligation <laughs> that they needed to provide that right now as well. Yeah. So, well, I know, I know, I know. A lot of times, where it's very obvious that we're. Uh, around uh, children who have never been told no. I mean, it, it right. becomes obvious sometimes where parents are afraid to do that or have any rules or even expectations. I, I think in other places, I don't know what your experience is, but I've certainly run through in my practice a number of starter marriages. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Where, where <laughs> you know, the, the two most beautiful kids in seminary or the two most beautiful kids in the state Marriage, marry each other. Wow! And the marriage lasts about less than a year, because neither one can handle being uncomfortable. They don't know how have any skills about uh, problem solving, um, and both are being enabled by parents 
that have done everything for them. Right. And when it gets to be rough, like we might have a difference of opinion about things, uh, the marriage just falls apart because there was never a true relationship either. And I'm surprised how many really short-term marriages we have right. going on. In fact, I just talked <laughs> to one the other day where that marriage is ending for this precise oh my reason. Gosh. It lasted less than a year. That's so sad to hear that. Well, we know that there are, kind of going back to you, Kevin, what you were kind of suggesting is that there's a lot of legitimacy, though, to this tough world that we live in. Even though we, as old guys, now can look back and think, oh, oh, gosh, come on, everyone. But really, this is a tough place, you know, and what are some factors that make this world a tough place to live? I mean, we've already identified that, okay, let's just say... There are some who do not have coping skills. They just haven't been taught resilience. But there's probably more than that, you know. I mean, for example, I'm thinking, sure, I mean, this world is more stressful and crazy and chaotic than any any time period that we've ever lived. And that has to rub off on our youth. If they're if they're watching the news, if they're seeing headlines, Mm -hmm. they're they're scared. They're nervous. And I don't blame them. Well, and one of those things, I mean, you talk about society. I think one of those factors that enters into this is that we are, as you know, we're much more polarized than we ever have before. So if there are political differences or ways of looking at the world, that each each political difference has its own narrative that goes with that. Sure. And part of that narrative is is an othering of the other other people. They are Mm -hmm. not me. They are them and I am me. Right. So I'm going to be... So I'm kind of intimidated by the others because right. they're, they're not me. Right. Uh, and so I don't know how to handle or bridge or have conversations with others. Mm-hmm. And if anybody's wondering about the othering effect, think about the last Thanksgiving that you sat around with, with, <laughs> with, with relatives that were others. Yeah. Uh, and how uncomfortable that can be. They're right. in the church. We're not in the church. Yeah. Uh, we are... We we lean this way politically. You lean that politically, right? Um, or we think this should the church should be doing this. We think the church should be doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. And oh, so you're the others. Now that I know that you're them, yeah, it's really stressful to be around the thems. So I'm going to hang with my tribe, right? Uh, and and I will stay inside my tribe because we talk common language. And we don't really want to know what the others are saying because we already know what the others are saying. Uh, and it'll be your cable uh, television of choice. Yeah. Based on my tribe or your tribe. Yeah. Such a great insight on on the uh, on the political climate and how that could affect some of the coping and resilience today. Mental health challenges are real. I mean, more today have anxiety, depression, and uh, stress. Uh, for what reasons, that would be a whole other podcast. But we know that it's epidemic now, right? Uh, I, I would like to. We ought to do one. You, you're right, Mark. On, <laughs> we will. On, on that because when, again, you're coming from uh, a position of leadership in the church, and, and I am too, and I work in conjunction mm-hmm. with, a, with a YSA ward. <coughs> and, and I am really aware of those that are, um, how many we have in the ward that do have significant uh, social challenges uh, it's a, num- a number of people that are kind of high-functioning Aspergers yeah. for whom they have a whole set of uh, literalism and anxiety and social 
scrupulosity, and, scrupulosity yeah. enters into all of that. You're right. Yeah, we could probably do an entire thing that's on scrupulosity, and probably should. I, so, so I'll come back to Plano. You right. mark it, <laughs> and we will do that later because that is that's a, a big one. Uh, but but depression is more rampant, and and all of that. But part of it, I think, Mark, and I think you'd agree with me, is is that. One of the reasons why there's so much anxiety and depression is exactly what we're talking about, is a lack of resilience. Exactly. Uh, sometimes tie de- into that for sure. depression has been called a lack of options. Mm-hmm. That's another, one way of framing depression. And right. certainly if, if a young person uh, feels like there are very few options in front of them, they're going to get more anxious. Totally. And, and you know, we're, we're missing that, that incredible teaching that, that happened earlier in our day where we were taught to not be afraid of things, you know, and to face things head on. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's being taught today like it was in the past. And certainly there are many things to be fearful of. When you put that combination together of a world where there's chaos and uncertainty and craziness, and then you put, you know, add to that or intersect with that a cohort of people, of, of youth who haven't been taught skills of resilience. Right. And coping, it, it can be a disaster, right? And so... I, I think part of that, too, and I think, again, I think you'd agree with me on this, part of that lack of resilience is an inability to communicate. Yeah. To know how to express. If, you're, if your communications are limited to brief texts, um, and as one of the reasons that the IT world had to add emojis because <laughs> uh, we can really cut down those uh, those words that we're using now right those yeah letters. but you didn't know what the emotion was behind yeah, it right and then you combine it with okay so we may go from texting to now we're going to finally get together but we're hanging out as a group mm-hmm. so there's very there's much less of we're going to sit across from a, a table at a restaurant or drive somewhere and talk together Right. Now we're just mainly going to discuss the movie we're watching while we're hanging out as a group. And now it's a group dynamic where I can hide back, I can sit in the corner, I don't have to interject anything. I can pull my phone out and start pushing those buttons. We're hanging out, but we're all on our phones. Yeah. Um, So so right next to the other one that we said we were going to pin, whatever that one was, oh, on, Hmm. on mental health stuff? Yeah. Uh, we probably ought to put the one on screen management. That, that, that is, <laughs> that's a that's an episode for sure, if not three or four. So yeah, let's transition this, Kevin, uh, for a second to why this is so relevant to us yeah. in our current not only family our family stations in life, but our our church station, so to speak. Because I know both you and I are in positions where we do see a lot of missionaries coming home, and, and in many cases they haven't been out there that long. Um, here's Elder Perry. If you if you can remember him, we love Elder Perry, and I know yeah. you love Elder Perry because yeah, we Perry. used to talk about him a lot. But uh-huh. missionary service is emotionally demanding. Your support system is going to be withdrawn from you as you leave home and go out into the world. There will be days of rejection and disappointment. Learn now, he said, about your emotional limits and learn how to control your emotions under the circumstances you will face as a missionary. And that's from Elder Perry back in November of 2007 in the Ensign. But Kevin, uh, what are you seeing on that? You know, as Elder Perry talks about how difficult missions can be, so get ready is what he seems to be oh, saying. You know what, this is so relevant. Uh, <laughs> I was just having a conversation with, uh, with my bishop, and, and he and I together had called um, 
uh, a leader in our ward. Uh, and, and we realized, uh, in fact, this was our discussion just this last uh, bishopric <laughs> meeting. Right. Um, we realized that we had said to this church leader coming in over and over and over, some form of this, this won't be that hard. This, is, this, this will be easy. You got this. You got this. We're going to give you good counselors. It'll be just fine. It's not a problem. Uh, this won't be that time demanding on, on your work. We know you're looking at going back to school. This won't be a big demand. You got this. Yeah. Uh, and I prefaced that with something that I heard from a, a wonderful uh, African-American uh, friend of mine who's thinking about his life. And his favorite phrase is, no pressure, no diamonds. Wow. That's, Amen. That's, that's kind Amen. of his motto, no pressure, no diamonds. And, and we actually took some time in, in some setting in, in our ward to say, we want to apologize publicly. Wow. That, that we have said over and over, these callings aren't hard, they're not demanding you can do this. Some callings require a lot of energy. It'll be hard. A lot of time and energy. And, and, and if you're going to do this well and you do it in a way that you feel good about the service, whether it's a mission or whether it's a calling, no pressure, no diamonds. Mm-hmm. No, nothing good's going to happen until you actually are able to to recognize there was a stress, it was a struggle, and it was okay. I, mm-hmm. The Lord will make me equal to the demands, uh, but instead, this is a this is a our generation raised on. Uh, going out to youth activities where the prayer is always the same, right? Mm-hmm. A, Heavenly Father, uh, help us to have fun tonight. <laughs> and bless the refreshments. And bless the refreshments and, and we're out of here, right? Because <laughs> it'll be fun and it's refreshments. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, no, I think that's a great, a great perspective. And it gets, you know, here's another podcast for us, but just the lost art of sacrifice. Yeah, no pressure, yeah. no diamonds. That, we'll pin that over to the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, I but I, I worry about that sometimes if, if our youth and if our adults are not willing to make sacrifices to help yeah. build the kingdom, then, then I think we're in trouble. So emotional preparedness, emotional resiliency, and mental toughness may be more critical to a missionary success than almost any kind of physical yeah. preparation. Right. Um, and uh, so we, we understand, and, and, and you and I, we actually, Kevin wrote a chapter on this a few years back. But I'm going to quote to you what we wrote. Uh, we wrote that we have yet to counsel with an early return missionary who came home prematurely because they couldn't sew on a button or had failed to memorize a scripture or cr- who couldn't put in some long hours at work. Although there are many of those who don't put those hours in. But we, what we were talking about was the idea that emotional resiliency and coping may be one of the most important skills that we can teach our children. So here was this study that was done, conducted, it was actually done by Utah Valley University a few years ago, uh, trying to determine the cause of our early return missionaries coming home. And 36% were uh, reported to have mental health issues, 36%. Um, And then 34% were physical issues, 11% were were unresolved transgressions, and then 12% were being disobedient to mission rules. But the majority by far yeah. um, was, uh, was were missionaries coming home early with, with mental health issues. Now I want to read this to you from Jonathan Sandberg and then Kevin please comment on it. Jonathan Sandberg actually is a professor at BYU who just returned home as a mission president. But he said anxiety and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder are the three main reasons we're seeing 
people coming home, and it's the inability to handle new stressors. In fact, he said 38% of early return missionaries said that stress was a contributing factor to their coming home from missions uh, prematurely. Um, Anyway, and then you and I wrote this. uh, We said that even though a lot of missionaries are reporting 34% physical issues, Mm -hmm. uh, this was like uh, headaches, back pain, insomnia, dizziness, stomach problems, we wrote that those core issues often serve as a catalyst for those physical symptoms. We call them psychosomatic. Mm-hmm. So in other words, maybe the majority of, of, of the, the physical problems can be rooted into mental and emotional as well. Yeah, and if you, if you boil that down, uh, we've known for years, when, when we talk about the term that uh, people are starving in front of the feast, yeah. uh, the problem is an inability to solve problems, the yeah. ability to know how to solve problems the inability to know how to sit down with somebody and resolve a difference uh, or to resolve it in a way that uh, we have at least a mutual understanding with one another. So if we're going to take somebody that has those in, that inability to solve problems, then we're going to put them with a companion, sometimes a foreign companion from a mm-hmm. different culture where they may, they may have fewer skills that way. And then on top of that, then we're going to put them with members and trying to work with uh, investigators uh, and and get pushback and rejection from, from people. They don't know how to solve problems. Right. And and when parents become, uh, what's the term, Track, tractor parent or bulldozer parents? Snowplow. Well, snowplow. Yeah, there snowplow. you go. Snowplow. Well, that's, that's in Utah. See, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here we do bulldozers. Right? Here we do bulldozers. <laughs> we don't need the snowplows, right? Um, no, the, the, the snowplow parents where we're going to clear the problems out of the road, well, they never get a chance to grow and solve their own problems. Uh, so they are going to be faced with things that they can't fix, and suddenly they don't have somebody there to bulldoze the problems out of the way. But that's part of that is anxiety on the part of the parents of wanting to make sure their kids don't have problems right? without recognizing the growth that is being missed because they didn't get a chance to do that. It's kind of the idea of prepare the child for the road and not the road for the child, and we see a lot of uh, we see a lot of that being kind of mixed up today a little bit. So, well, we want to qualify this. We want to make sure that everyone listening today understands that we know that there are legitimate reasons why missionaries come home, and we're not trying to imply that every young man or young woman just needs to get, stay out there and gut it out, right. no matter how terrible their mental health challenges are. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that. We're just seeing more and more come home now at an alarming rate, at a rate that we, you know, you and I, Kevin, could, I remember on my mission in the early 80s, there was one missionary who went home, no, right. two, two missionaries yeah. the entire time, and it's not unusual now to have in a stake someone coming home every month, you know. Well, let me shift it to something that I think you would understand even better than, than I would. Yeah. Because um, I just, I, I work with... Uh, students online, both, both is actually at, uh, at BYU. Uh, I've got a, a number of them there that I've worked with. And, and one of the things that I find with them is that this isn't just a mission thing. You'll see them going off to, to BYU and then, and then somewhere like, like about a month or two into the, into the semester, they quit going to classes. Yeah. And they just have completely dro- <laughs> dropped out of those classes. Uh, or they're going through a real funk where they're having a hard time getting things done. Right. Uh, and then suddenly they get to the end of a semester, and it turns out that they were video gaming all during the semester. 
uh, or they or they just were so depressed they couldn't they were sleeping in all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I would imagine you're seeing you see people that just kind of drop out. You know, the number one answer, we, we, you know, in this semester at BYU, we've had two holidays already, right? We had Martin Luther King Day and President's yeah. Day. 20 years ago, hey, what did you guys do? We went skiing, we went hiking, we went snowshoeing. We, today, what did you guys do? Well, we slept. Mm-hmm. You know, we slept in a lot, and, and then we got caught up, which I can appreciate. <laughs> I mean, that was how we used uh, President's Day ourselves, was just trying to get caught up. But, but there's just... Uh, there's a demand for a lot more rest. It feels like today, and, and uh, yeah. Anyway, so so Kevin, here's I, w- I want to talk about some solutions here, or some things that parents can do, and 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 let's just I'm going to throw these out. These are things that you and I wrote about in our little book years ago, and I think we both forgot about that. And uh, it's kind of good to dust those things out. <laughs> yeah, pull yeah. it out and dust r- off r- the cover. R- remind us. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually surprised to read our first one because it seemed a little interesting, but now that I've thought more about it, and our first one was, you know, the first intervention of what parents and grandparents can do to build resilience and coping in their children and grandchildren is to show love and affection. And, And maybe that seems counterintuitive at first, but we need that because children need a relationship. They need connection with their parents. Research tells us that if there's connection, then they feel that their world is stable and they feel comfortable and they can fe- even feel at peace if they have good relationships with their parents, right? I, I think all of the uh, attachment studies, talking about the early attachment styles of how our kids anxiously attach because parents tend to be more fearful or they distantly attach because parents are more distant. Uh, if you're gonna have them learn how to problem solve, it's gotta come off of a base where they know how to attach. Yeah. And their their ability to attach and to solve problems is going to be related to the amount of uh, warmth and affection that mm. they got from parents. It doesn't mean, and that's and and let's just keep in mind, enabling and love are not the same thing. Right. <laughs> Those are two separate. It's very separate. Love, love and warmth is not a snow plowing is not love. Exactly. Warmth, warmth and affection. Which yeah. transitions us to the next principle that we talk about, you know, regarding hovering, helicopter parenting, that we want to help our children to develop independence, you know, even even at an early age. I mean, from the age of three, there are chores that they can do around the house where they can establish some of that independence. But Kevin, one of my favorite things about you, and I've we've talked about this many times in the past, but I've shared even with you some of my problems or challenges, and, and you have this great phrase, you're like, what are you going to do about that? Right. I'm like, right. Kevin gets paid a lot of money to tell people, so what are you going to do about that? But I think that's something great that we have, like you, you know, you're saying problem solving. Uh, I wrote that character is developed when there's resistance, not coddling. I think that's what you are just saying yeah. about snow plowing. But right. what are your thoughts, Kevin, on this idea of teaching children independence? Yeah, and, and that, that's why ultimately if, if, if we're walking through the process of saying, uh, what have you thought about that? That's horrible. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry you're going through that. What have you thought about doing? What are the possibilities? Well, I'm not sure. What would other people do in this situation? What do you think they've done? Yeah. Um, and rather than saying you should do this, you should do this, make sure you do this. You know, we're mm-hmm. supplying all the answers. If we're trying to teach them problem-solving skills, uh, then we're trying to say, what are you willing to try? What do you want to try next? What should you be doing? Uh, 
okay, why don't you give that a shot? Come back and tell me how that went. Um, and, and so they can celebrate when they find a solution, but also it's like, well, that didn't work. Okay, well, at least you know now. So now this is what adults do. Adults then take a look at a situation. If it didn't work, then you find another solution. What's another option? Yeah. And we just become problem-solving focused with them. I love you, but I'm not going to fix this. Uh, means I love you enough to let you grow and solve a problem. That's certainly how Heavenly Father works with us, right? It's kind of the <laughs> heavenly pattern last time I checked. He does that well with us, doesn't he? Yeah. Another one is, you know, on this problem solving, I'll call this number three, but but encouraging our children to take risks, right? Yeah. To do challenging things and to do hard things. I know that in our family, and you've, you have these stories too, but I remember a daughter who was a cheerleader in high school, and by the time her senior year rolled around, she just, it wasn't a great, it hadn't been a great experience. And she decided that she wanted to try something totally different, which was cross country. And so her senior year, she gave all of that, that glamour and fame that goes with cheerleading away to be on the cross country team. But I was so proud of her for just trying something new that was way out of her comfort zone. Now, the cool thing about that is she runs, runs today. I mean, she, when I say that, she lives here in Dallas. She's training for a marathon right now. She's, right. She chose a skill that she could use. Another daughter at that same high school lost an election. You know, and I know that that can be devastating when you're... Right. But we encourage her to, to pick herself up, pick herself up, to dust herself off, and to get back on the horse. And the next year she ran again and she won. Right. But, but those are the type of things. I don't know, Kevin, what are your thoughts on this idea of encouraging our kids to take risks and to do hard things? Well, I was just thinking, as you were saying that about your daughter and cheerleading, I was, yeah. just, I was thinking about how easy it might have been for you or, or Sister Ogletree or whoever to, to say, no, sweetheart, you need to stay with cheerleading. This is a good play. You know, mm -hmm. that's going to be scary. You're probably not going to do as well. I think that's going to be hard on you. In other words, if we're feeling some anxiety about, wow, we don't like to risk musk, we're going to ex we're going to suggest that to our kids. No, you shouldn't risk much. Yeah. I don't know how to problem solve very well. I'm uncomfortable with problem solving, so I'm going to spread that to my kids. You should <laughs> you should be scared about risking anything new. Yeah. Because I don't want you to make a mistake. Uh, but I think you did something well there in encouraging. Okay, you're going to you're going to drop this and, and go cross country. Good for you, sweetheart. Let's let's back you up. How can we help? Amen. And, and part of that, just so you know, was that we didn't want to let her quit. I mean, we, we made her finish out the year. We didn't want her to quit, and that was part of that conversation. But once we got that cleared out of the way, you're exactly right. That's what happened next. And so here's another one, Kevin. Number four is what I'm calling this one, to teach our children how to tolerate some discomfort. Yes. And, and, and that life is painful and that life is hard. And, you know, one of the things I wonder for all of us as parents, do our children know our uncomfortable stories? Do they know mm. our failures? Have we sat down and told them about the time we got cut from the team or had a horrible experience with grades or whatever it was or with a social group and, and how we overcame that? Because I think they need to see those models in, in their parents. They do? Yeah, and, and maybe sometimes we just tell them all of the success stories. Yeah. <laughs> rather than say, I tried this and it didn't work. Right, right. And then I had to figure out how to do something different and here's what I here's what I chose to do I think that's a great point yeah yeah here's number five provide your children with increasing responsibility for managing their own lives so how do you do that how do you turn that over to them 
in a way where they are now responsible for some adult-like things, even when yeah. they're teenagers. Well, and, that, and that, that's hard, isn't it? Because basically what you're having to do is, is a gradual uh, stepping back of a parent and allowing them to rise up and be become more responsible adults. Right. So that means how I parent at 14 is different than how I'm mm -hmm. going to parent them at 16 now I'm going to parent them at 18. Right. And if we're still using the same disciplinary tactics and we're still getting them this, if their bedtime is the same <laughs> or, or something from 12 to 18 we probably have not stepped back. We have to adjust, right? But, but we want to be able to get them at 18 are they ready are they how much are they self-regulating themselves? Uh, how much are they working on things? Um, I, I, I will tell you r real quickly, it, it is funny how uh, 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 when our kids were all, all teenagers, we, we remodeled our living room. Mm. And we had an extra chair left over. We didn't know what to do with it. So we actually stuck it in our, uh, we brought it in the bedroom, sat it next to our bed because we didn't know where else to go with it. Yeah. And, and that night, about 10, 30, or 11, one of our teenagers just wandered in and plopped down on the bed and started <laughs> talking. And right. we went, wow. And then, and then like the next night, somebody else came in and sat down and started talking. Always like 10, 30, or 11, right about when time I wanted to go to bed. And, and when they want to talk, right? And when they wanted to talk. And from that point on, we always had a chair by the bed. Yeah. Uh, so that if they, that's when they want to talk, we're going to find a way to keep ourselves awake. Uh -huh. um, because if they're talking, we're listening. But that was the idea. We're listening when they want to talk. So even if, even if it's not convenient, I think that's great. So, so making ourselves available to just listen and not be problem solving for them, not advice giving, uh, but simply just listening and then asking them gently, wow, what are you going to do about that? What have you thought about? How would most people handle that? You know, Kevin, along, know turns out. along that lines, this a little off to the side, is, is this idea of you know, letting them have those adult responsibilities. You know, I, I've, I've loved watching my children apply for school on their own or filling out their mission papers on their own. Yes. And, and once again, I say that because I know there's a lot of parents who do all of that, you know, and, and they're even calling and making appointments for their children uh, with bishops and stake presidents and patriarchs. And you're wondering, why, how come your child's not doing that, right? They're uh, I'm, totally I'm capable. Do you, do you get calls from parents oh, yeah. uh, teaching at, at school? Like, they're wondering to know what's happened with their kids' grades? and Not, not a lot, but I have. I mean, yeah. in fact, I've received more calls probably from parents than from, from their kids. <laughs> I would think. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, and luckily there's not many, but that has happened. How about this one, that, number six, to have them learn from their mistakes. So in other words, using their mistakes as an opportunity to teach yeah. and to help them to improve, but also to share with them our mistakes along the way. You know that. Uh, can I tell a great story? I'm going to tell a great. This is such a great story. It has to be told. Okay. I don't know what our time frame is, but you're going to you're going to love we're, this. We're, we're good. I got it. <laughs> uh, Henry B. Iron from his life, his father Henry Iron grows up in Mexico, you know, lives there for part of his life. Just just file that part away for a minute. And this is like in the early 1900s. So uh, Brother Irene and his wife Mildred have three sons. They have uh, Ted, they have Henry, and they have Hardin. When Hardin is like 12 or 13 years old, he decides with his friend Butch, and everyone needs a friend named Butch, don't you <laughs> think? Do. From the 1950s? <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's just how it was. <laughs> And he and Butch decide to take the, the car out, the family car out for a joyride. 
And uh, it was going well, except when they, when they were coming home and he was going to put this car in the driveway. He look, hard looks in the rearview mirror and sees that there's a car right behind him, and he kind of panics of, how am I going to do this? So he just pull, you know, cuts the wheel and turns into the driveway going about 50 miles an hour and just slams into the house. And so it ruins the car. And you know what cars were built like in 19... 19- oh, yeah, they're tanks. They were like a tank, right? And, and I'm sure damages the house severely and, and, da- and it ruins the car. And uh, Mildred said, okay, that's it, Harden. You're going to call your dad right now because uh, Henry Irene Sr., Henry was was in Europe or somewhere speaking yeah. at a conference. And so right. he had to call his dad and tell him what he had done. And what a great parent, you know, that, that Elder Irene, President Irene must have had to have this dad get on the phone with his son Harden, hear the whole story of what Harden did. And then Henry said, let me tell you a story. You know, and he said... When I was your age, there was a huge buffalo gun hanging above the mantle of the fireplace, and there was a bully in our town, and he came by causing some trouble, so Henry and his friend grabbed the buffalo gun off of the fireplace, aimed it at this kid, and pulled the trigger, not realizing it was loaded. And luckily, they were a, he was a horrible shot, but the, the bullet hit right in front you know, of where this kid was walking, and he just realized that he could have murdered somebody right in his street in Pima, Arizona, you know, or, or Mexico, wherever it was. And after sharing that story, uh, you know, Henry Irene Sr., sharing that with his son Harden, who was once again 12 or 13, and, and how he almost had killed someone, he just said, you know, I think I know exactly how you feel. And that was it. And Harden said there was never another word ever mentioned. Right. Just empathy from dad, sharing his mistake. And, uh, and moving on, right? So anyway, I just love that story. All right. That's, you're right. That was a pretty good story. It was worth telling, don't you <laughs> it think? It was worth telling. That was telling. like a top five, at least. Here's the other one, Kevin, that I want to I get your opinion on this, especially with your church responsibilities now and the age group that you're working with. But there seems to be almost a cultural, you know, a cultural establishment of a baseline that when you turn 18 years old, you have to go on a mission. And my, my understanding of that, of that lowering of the mission age was not an expectation that every young man would go on a mission at age 18. In fact, I, I've noticed that there are young men that when they tell me that they want to go to a year of school first and then go on their mission, they almost say it sheepishly. Like they're, they're, Embarrassed. Yeah, yes. that they're, oh my gosh, I'm not going. Yet what I'm learning and seeing with our young men who are leaving when they're 18, and not in every case, and you, you can speak to that too, but not in every case, but... When you've never lived away from home ever, and the first experience you have living away from home is in a hut in southern Chile, uh, you know. And, and so number seven, I wrote, or we wrote together, when possible, encourage your child to live away from home for a brief period of time before they go into the mission field. And, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Now, once again, I don't want to interfere with what parents believe. If parents feel and if their child feels like they want to go right right out of high school. And our son did that. You know, He was a little bit older, though. He had one of those early birthdays. So after he graduated from high school, by the, that fall, he was on, on his mission. But I still feel like that for some of our young men and young women, having that year or so, even if it's a semester away from home, living on their own, could be very beneficial. Not for everyone, but for some, right? <laughs> I, I, I will say that I, I recently, on a trip, uh, had the 
has a just recently returning mission president and his wife. Oh, and, wow. and one of the things that he said in, in that setting, because I asked him this very question, Mark. Oh, yeah. And, and his response was, I'm not a fan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> of 18-year-olds. Yeah. It, you know, because some are able to handle it, but the vast majority, he says, would have benefited from some time away uh, because they're still learning how to, to do that. So, Well, I think that's that's really significant coming from a mission president, you know. Yeah, that was his experience. We have to pay attention to that. So I want to share with you, Kevin, just in, in closing, and I think this is very valuable. And I'm going to keep the, the names anonymous here, even though I don't, I don't think the individuals would care if we use their names. But, and Kevin, you feel free to chime in on any of these. But we had a bishop in our stake that not long ago went down to uh, Chile. Like, that's, our, that's our word for today. Um, to visit his mission where he had served 20 years earlier. And he was able to go to lunch with the mission president. And as a bishop, he just said to the mission president, could you, kind of like you did yeah. on the airplane, yeah. you know, could you share with me some of your concerns as a mission president that I as a bishop could go back and teach the young men and young women in my ward? And the mission president was very happy to comply and say, look, if you could convey this to the parents and to the missionaries in your ward, it would be very helpful. And, and then I, we, I found out later that the mission president actually sent this out to the missionaries. Number one, have the youth learn to wake up early and be prepared to be productive soon after they wake up. Mm. Amen? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I know that a lot of our youth, they, they, they sleep a lot, right? And they, they, and they go to bed really late and they wake up quite late. And Well, Mark, you, you, years ago, you and I getting ready for an education week uh, class, you and I talked to a, a returned missionary. Or mission mission president. president, yeah, we did. And, and I still remember his words which were, uh, there's a reason that everybody wants Idaho farm boys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he said, I, I just need kids that know how to work. He right. Says, I can get them a testimony. The work will get them a testimony. I just need workers. Yeah. And, and so everything related to how do we know if they can get up and work hard sets them act in some ways more ready for a mission than just simply a knowledge of the scriptures. That's so good. In fact, I remember, Kevin, that that mission president, and I know right where we were sitting yeah, when he I told remember. us that. That's true. Uh, where, he, where he said, in fact, I got to the point where I didn't even care if they had testimonies because he said I could work with that, but if they, did, if they didn't know how to work, it was the game was over. You know? right. Right. Which, he says I can't put want to in them. Yes, yes, <laughs> so exactly. Number two, basically building on what you just said, is, is that these young men and young women need to work. They need to have jobs summer jobs he even said before they go into the mission field uh, they want to learn how to work and to learn he said to work many hours in a row and many days in a row and to have them work hard in other words they're not just working but they're working hard he said the goal isn't money the goal is to have them learn how to work and then number three he told them that they needed to get this is not a surprise we don't need to talk about this forever but just the idea that they need to get away from their phones that these missionaries actually have phantom vibrations all day long yeah and I remember our first daughter when she went on her mission to Spain. And I remember we lived in Dallas. We came up to, to Utah. And uh, I just wanted to do this so bad. But uh, this was the days of a flip phone. But we had a ceremonial destroying of the phone. And uh, we walked into my uh, brother-in-law's uh, garage where he had a great little workshop, put her phone in the vice, and just cranked it until it just we ground it into powder, right? Love it, love it. And uh, it was just fun to watch her go. Oh my gosh! Oh no! It was like I was I was you know taking a part of her life away. But 
Anyway, so the mission president talked about not only social media fast, but just learning how to cut way back on phone time and texting. Um, and then, Kevin, let's have you talk about number, uh, the, well, we won't number these, but just the next one, where the mission president said, look, we've got to teach parents. If, if we're going to let parents interact with the missionaries while they're in the mission field and have these weekly calls, we need to do a better job of training the parents how to do this because sometimes it's really ruining the missionaries as they talk about their last trip to Disney World or a, a challenge that someone's having. They can't find their dog. Uh, and uh, anyway, what what is your experience with that? Oh boy, it's, it's funny you should say that. I, I, I recently had a, I met with a, an elder just before he was going to the MTC. Right. Uh, and he and I have worked on a number of issues together and he's in a great place uh, to do this. His number one concern, though, was his mom. Yeah. How's my mom doing in her marriage? It's a little bit stressful. There's some things going on. And he was more worried about that. Um, and I, I, then I had a chance to meet with, with her not long after that and tried to express that a little bit. He's more worried about you even than his mission. So in your weekly conversations, uh, if you're going to be talking, she's going to be wanting to know how you're doing and she's going to want to be more worried about are you surviving this thing? Uh, and she says, yeah, it's going to be hard. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to really miss him, and he mm-hmm. really does a lot for me. And I said, yeah, think about if you're telling him that every week. Um, I, I'm, I'm surprised. I have, a, I have a granddaughter on a mission right now yeah. uh, down in Houston. And even in her conversation, I'm surprised how much, as a family, we know about her struggles with her companions, and we know about her struggles in, in her zone and some of the investigators. Is pretty transparent. Yeah, uh, and and so we know when she's actually having a hard time. It's like we're all going through this together, and it just feels, you know, you and I harken back to the days of <laughs> we talk to our families twice a year, right? Christmas. And I think and you got thirty Day. minutes. Uh, yeah, and you got to do it fast, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not a real fan of, of that. I, I think we've maybe we've needed to do it for for some missionaries, but. Boy, I, th- I think if we continue to try and solve problems even while they're on missions, they still are not learning problem-solving things because parents are trying to solve companion problems, investigator problems, apartment problems for their missionaries while they're still out. We're still snow plowing even after they're supposed <laughs> to be uh, out of all of this. So yeah, that's crazy. That's such a great insight, Kevin. And I, I do think you know, I'm sure there are parents out there who do do a really great job of this. You know. And, and I know that uh, I'm, I'm going to assume, and we had that experience with our last daughter who was in the mission field when that rule changed, but there was a lot of talk about who, who she was teaching and what was going on and in her life, uh, living with different companions and, and that kind of thing. And there was some, some things that were thrown out to, to try to help solve, you know, but, but yeah, I think, I think if, if, really, I think the issue is, is if parents can keep their young missionaries focused on the work and what they're doing out there and not worry so much about, hey, guess who's wearing your clothes while you're gone yeah. and driving your car and and grandma's got this disease and anything. But, but there are things that we can drop in, things like tell me how you're getting along with your companion yeah, and, and all that where we start to kind of impose ourselves into their process yeah, uh, where, we do, where we have no right. Yeah. We've got to allow them to have those experiences. Right. So, Kevin, one last word. If you, if you had a... One last word on you know how parents and grandparents could teach these uh, resiliency and 
coping, what would you say if you could boil it down to a sentence or two? Do your kids know how to solve problems? Yeah. When a problem comes up in their life, do they know how to go through the steps of what needs to happen? Let me try it. Did it work? How do I reevaluate? How do I and then back to the top? How do I mm-hmm. what what needs to happen? What are the possibilities? What have I tried? And, and, and then did it work? Reevaluate. What do I do next? I, I love that. I mean, that, that, that's adult problem solving, but we need to, these kids need to know that at 16, not 26. I love that, Kevin. And I would say, you know, this, that we never, we, I call it a cardinal rule in parenting, but we never do anything for our children that they can do for themselves. No and, question. And that starts at a very young age, you know, a young age. And the other one is let's teach them to do hard things. Let's do hard things with our children. But by the way, can I just mention? Yeah. If, if you take that cardinal rule, just be aware that it is less efficient and it takes longer. It's easier as, for us to, as parents to step in and do it for them because it'll get, be done better and quicker and more efficiently with less risk and less anxiety on the parts of the kids. But we've just robbed them of that entire experience. So if you're going to have them make dinner, it's going to be messier. It, it's not going to be as good. Uh, they'll probably screw some things up. And it's way okay, but it's not going to be as efficient. Amen, amen. And I remember uh, watching my son mow the yard for the first time, and then being so it was so hard for me not to go out there and want to remow it after because yes. there was just patches and strips everywhere. Okay. But okay, that's so how he learned, right? Sisters, if if you want, and, and boy, I can't tell you how many com- times we've had this conversation. If you want your kids to do the dishes and fill the dishwasher. Don't go behind them <laughs> right. and redo the dishes in the dishwasher <laughs> unless you want to make sure that you just discourage them from ever doing the dishes ever again. again right? And by the way, same rule with husbands. Right. If the husband's going to the, load the Please. dishwasher, don't go behind him just because he put the knives with the blades up rather than blades <laughs> down. <isn't it? laughs> oh, that's amen, amen. Yeah. So LDS, let's do something. Our invitation today as we finish is that uh, take a look at uh, the way that you're teaching resiliency and coping in your own homes and find one simple thing. You could even be prayerful about it, but one simple thing that you could do this next week or two that would help your children to do things on their own, that would help them to be more independent mm-hmm. and, to, uh, and to help them be, develop some of those coping skills that we've talked about today. Well, it was great. Kevin, thank you so much. It was oh, great always. to be with you in your office here in Plano, Texas. This is still your home down here, this dude. Is, I know, I know you're in, in Provo, <laughs> but this is still home. Just don't forget that. This uh, always, it does feel like home all the time. So, well, grateful, Kevin. Great to be with you today, and to everyone else. Have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next time. All right.